Hello, I'm Michael Kuhl. And I'm Roger Burton-West. And this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, number two in a series of podcasts, in which we, as ageing and respectable, we are respectable, aren't we? As long as nobody finds out. Yeah. Let's not talk about it. Um, gaming gurus attempt to pass on our wisdom, what small groats of it we've managed to gather, and to discuss role-playing games. This programme's theme is modern horror. We're going to talk in general themes this week about what all horror games bring up and problems that are peculiar to running and playing in games where our worst nightmares are going to come to life, hopefully, if we do it right. At the same time, looking at specific examples of games that have tried to do this. So, first of all, we're just going to take a brief run over the scene and look at games we've played, games we've enjoyed, games we recommend, and then jump into themes. First of all, at the very top, we should mention Call of Cthulhu, which is the first, oldest, and to many of its uh, partisans, the best of the horror role-playing games. Strictly speaking, it isn't a modern role-playing game. Um, much of its material is set in the 1920s, the period when Elkarat was writing and about which he was writing. Yes, the, the, the recent editions do contain enough material to run a game in at least the 1980s and probably the modern day as well. Yeah, for, uh, it's not uh, time-bound by, by any means, it's just modern, the, the material is time-bound to, uh, to what's now a historical period. It features the aforementioned Cthulhu and his mythos, the ray of the array, I should say, of uh, vast, um, horrendous, and unsympathetic gods made up by uh, Lovecraft and his friends. And it's pretty dark in many places, but it's still enormously um, popular amongst uh, amongst players. It's got an especially strong life at conventions, I'd say. I think some of this may be a sense of relief. You are going to die. You are going to come to a bad end, but you can go down in a blaze of glory. Oh, uh, yeah. And then going down in a blaze of glory, maybe holding off the last steps of doom is the major theme of it. It introduced the first mechanic for uh, sanity, which we're going to talk about you know, quite a bit in, in depth later on, and is still going strong. Seventh edition? Is that coming up now? It's being playtested at the moment. Hmm. So... And it changes things. Big changes? Bigger changes than between first and sixth. Oh, well. I shall look forward to that, I think. Next, we're also going to talk about... Another game that's uh, rather more obscure than Call of Cthulhu. Uh, Dark Conspiracy came out in the late 80s, early 90s. And was characterised as... It's a horror game like Call of Cthulhu, but sometimes you get to win. <laughs> Uh, it was published by GGW and used much the same system as the military RPGs Twilight 2000 and 2300 AD. Uh, so there was a certain amount of focus on combat, on military hardware, and it, it didn't, for example, have much in the way of, of a sanity mechanic. But it, the, the thing that it did do, that step, took it apart from Call of Cthulhu, I think, was to offer the possibility of psychic powers to the PCs. They're mostly fairly small ones, uh, 
not going not going to uh, change the course of world history, but they do at least have something to fight back with. The title seems to indicate that it's taking some of its tropes from uh, the X Files. That was certainly one of the influences. Yes, uh, it's odd there's never been an X Files role playing game as such, but there have been certainly plenty that have uh, used the the government is hiding everything and it's a, it's all terrible and corrupt. It may just have been a licensing concern. Talking of terrible and corrupt. Oh, well, true. Um, an another game worth looking at, or a pair of games, really, is uh, the ESA Terrorists and Fear Itself, which are fairly recent games using the Gumshoe system, possibly better known in Trade of Cthulhu. Now, to me, as a fairly old-school role player, these are a bit odd. Well, yeah. Because they, they step away from the simulationist approach of... I am a person who knows this, therefore I could work that out, in favour of guiding the shape of the story. So, for example, if one character may be a brilliant forensic anthropologist, but even if the adventure is all about bones, he's not going to be able to use his abilities to solve every puzzle in the adventure. He's going to run out of points and, and step aside to let somebody else have some glory. Yeah. Which... It's perfectly reasonable if, if you want to tell that sort of shape of story, and it's very enjoyable. It's just something that doesn't quite work with the way I tend to run role-playing games. Oddly enough, I my observation would be that simulationism, it's easier to introduce new elements, improvised elements, with a simulationist game sometimes than it is with a game that's more about um, telling the story. Doubtless, people who like, who like um, the um, Gumshoe engine will argue against that, but... And do. Write to us. Uh, yeah, please. Write more. Um, but uh, I, I think that Gumshoe sort of requires that the clues and what may be found out are planned out fairly strongly in advance. But people who actually understand and like the system may tell me I'm wrong. I probably am. Certainly when I've seen adventures they have tended to say... In this scene, you can get this clue by doing this thing, that clue by doing the other thing. Mm. Well, but a pre-written adventure has to do that anyway. Yeah. Um, just to split down these, these two gumshoe games slightly, uh, Issa Terrorists has the PCs as elite investigators who are fighting people trying to bring magic back into the world, or into the world, depending on how you regard it. Um, they don't have much in the way of esoteric powers themselves, but they are tough and skilled and so on. Fear itself is much more of a conventional horror game. Um, you're you're allowed to have one character with psychic powers, but the 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 tougher you are, the the more interesting powers you have. Generally, the more fragile your role is, the more likely you are to die fairly early on. Mm. Yeah, and the... it, it, it's very much in, in the style of the game where people get slaughtered in increasing order of um, moral purity, <laughs> or at least it supports that very very clearly. Oh dear, I. I... I do, I do find that trope a, li a little worrying sometimes, because it requires me to make absolute moral judgments as to who's being morally pure. Uh, just see who's got the highest point value code of honour. <laughs> okay, uh, the laundry files is one we both looked at a bit. Oh yes, indeed. Um, enthused about, I think. Indeed. Uh, in in terms of system, it's pretty much the same basic role playing that underlies Call of Cthulhu, with some extra twists. It's based on the novels by Charles Stross, um, which are about um, the British 
government's response to the fact that the world is going to end and there's magic and horror. And tentacles. And tentacles, lots of tentacles. And it's sort of a cross between Call of Cthulhu and Paranoia. It is, mm. it is being played for laughs at the same time as it's being played seriously. I think this might be... Um, a, a Finn once told me it's not a really good joke unless an ambulance gets called. <laughs> Isn't nationality important in that anecdote? Well, he was drunk at the time. He's a Finn. Another one that I, I've never really looked at but seems quite fascinating. Unknown Armies. Unknown Armies is quite fascinating. It was... I believe, originally written as a means of realising um, novels like um, Tim Power's Modern Horror novel, Expiration Date, and those where there is magic and strangeness in the world, but it's rather seedy and rather disgusting. If you look underneath the, the system, underneath the surface of the world, there are strange things going on and there are people who know about these strange powers and can use them but they aren't great wizards they're con artists they're people who can persuade the universe to do things their way by various devious means and they're all slightly crazy that's one of the things that's defining about an unknown army's character they're all obsessed and slightly bonkers some of them are so obsessed that they can rip holes in the universe and remake it to their own point of view. Well, you don't see normal people doing that. Well, no, quite. Um, and it is a very freeform um, sort of system uh, based on percentiles. Everything is rated as percentiles, but there is a lot of opportunity to build on the basic statistics of body, mind, soul, and so on and create your own defining abilities. Uh, one person with a high body might be a weightlifter and have weightlifter 66% as one of his traits. Another pe person might have martial arts 55% um, as his one of his defining traits. It's built at three levels. Um, the street level where you're uh, one of the uh, more sordid uh, members of the occult underground the global level, where you're a slightly more powerful but still quite sordid uh, member of the underground, and a cosmic level, at which point you're trying to become a god. While staying sordid. While staying, uh, excuse me, sordid does not, um, the, the eldest being alive, uh, the Comte de Saint-Germain, is pretty damn sordid most of the time. It's a great system and a great universe. It does have its own particular problems, which we'll come back to. Right, a, a couple of uh, GURPS settings. GURPS Horror itself is written by Ken Height and a pretty solid guide on how to run a horror campaign in, in really any system you like. But two specific examples that have been published for GURPS. One, one is Monster Hunters, which is clearly rather inspired by Larry Correa's Monster Hunter International series. Uh, there are lots of supernatural creatures, and quite a few of them are PCs. You want to be a werewolf, you want to be a vampire, you want to be a mysterious magical construct, that's fine, we can accommodate that. E everything's in there, and it probably wants to kill you. The other one that is not actually quite published yet is Madness Dossier, uh, which will be coming out probably within the year from E23, uh, also written by Ken Height, 
uh, a setting in which history is a lie and there are enigmatic, possibly alien, possibly demonic entities who in were involved in writing the human subconscious source code and wants to keep themselves in charge of things. I, want to be, I think, I think you're, you're, you're not quite right in saying that history is a lie. History is a retrofit. History, as we know it, was invented... Came into being. ...as an accident when, when the um, actual history, which involved the complete dominance of these things, got When history 1.15 was overridden by history 2.0. It's a game about reality, the horror that reality isn't quite what you think it is. In fact, it isn't what you think it is at all. You cannot trust your perceptions and you certainly cannot trust words. And you certainly cannot trust anybody you meet, including the people on your own side. And let's face it, even the PCs aren't really terribly nice. Mm. But they do a very important job. I'm looking forward to that one. It's worked quite well so far. I'm, I'm running a um, playtest game of it at the moment. See elsewhere on this site. One last thing I'd like to mention um, is one of the ancestors of Unknown Armies. At least it looks to me to be um, a more or less direct predecessor in some of the game design aspects, which is Over the Edge, a game which has just had a, God help us, I think it's 20th anniversary, which makes me feel old. Um, it's the quintessential game of modern day weirdness. Horror is included in it, but it's a, a lot more than that. It's a, a game where the definition of reality is very light, the system is very light, and almost anything can happen. The engine for it, in my experience, can be adapted to almost anything, and has been. But it's it's a game where you go out and poke holes in reality, and reality pokes holes in you. It's set primarily on a small island in the middle of the Mediterranean, otherwise ignored by geography, where there's very little government, and what there is is abusive, and all the weirdness of the world seems to gather. It touched some very adult themes in the time when it was being actively published. Child abuse um, and racism in one especially dark um, supplement called With a Long Spoon. But also high weirdness and surrealism and just plain silliness. There's a major character who happens to be a cartoon tribolite. But it is a game that I wish there were more of, and which anybody who wants a very simple, very adaptable engine for playing any sort of weird horror should take a look at. I believe the core rule system is now being made freely available. Yes, I believe um, what's it called Warp, the Warp engine, yes. is now um, available to anybody, and the publishers are starting to take an interest in it again, which is all to the good. So, those are the games we're going to look at. And in just a moment, we'll uh, start dealing with the specific things that affect horror games and how those various different uh, systems solve them. Sorry, what, what is our first problem? What, what are we... Well, the first problem is that in horror books, movies, TV programmes, people die. It's one of the ways you know that it's horror. Um, bad things happen to even to good people, and our players are... Let us hope mostly good people. At least I think that. Well, give them that, that impression. Um, our player characters, maybe not so much. 
let's kill the players should always be on the mind of the horror GM. Am I wrong? I'm just remembering one, one of the early science fiction systems had character design generation process so complex that the GM was explicitly advised never to allow a PC to die because it would just take too long to bring up a new one. <laughs> It's a council of despair, if ever there was one. But yes, um, there, there should be, if not actual lethality, at least a sense that lethality is out there waiting to pounce on you if you're not careful. Mm, I, I, I have a problem that I feel that it should pounce more often than it does. I, I have carefully cultivated um, a reputation, I'm not sure if I deserve it any longer, of being a GM who will kill player characters. Um, it's been a it's been decades since I last did a total party kill. But I haven't had a PC death. Well, until last month, I hadn't had a PC death for several years. Yeah, it's it's a problem though. Players love their characters, and players will sulk if you kill rare characters. Players will sulk if you kill their characters. I was going to say unfairly, but they'll they'll sulk. They, they at least won't be happy about it. Usually. Yeah, but there has to be a feeling of lethality. One trick I think that um, Ken Hype recommends in GURPS Horrors, which, which we're going to keep recommending, is a really good... My copy is great. Yeah. It, it will be useful to you whatever sort of game you're running, not just horror, horror game. He suggests that you do a sort of prelude, a pre-title sequence adventure with pre-gen characters for the players. Here you are, you're gathered in this little hut out in the, out in, out in the, in the boonies, then kill all those characters. The, the equivalent of the um, pre-credits teaser. Yeah. Bef before the heroes show up. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Make them make, make them good characters. Put them put them in an impossible no-win situation. Uh, Koyabashi Maru them to death, and then really start the campaign, which is a trick I've never done, but I could see it would prepare the players for taking seriously what's what's to follow. And on the other hand. Well, Call of Cthulhu, at least as I've seen it played, doesn't try to keep you alive. Um, or sane. But part of the advantage it has is that the players know going in, we are playing Call of Cthulhu, we are going to have a high casualty rate. We, we're not going to get too attached to our characters, which is a shame from the role-playing point of view, but uh, it do doesn't affect them as hard when it happens. And if you've heard any of the yogsothoth.com game recordings, Sometimes it's it's quite a joyous moment when when somebody goes out because of a fumble with dynamite by a fellow player character rather than being eaten by an eldritch horror. Well, true. Um, one of the things uh, Call of Cthulhu convention play is all, all, almost always deliberately designed to leave only one or two people alive at the end, if that. And I have a friend who rejoices in doing that sort of thing, but so that he can go mad rather than die, or rather go mad before he dies, because it's such a grand occasion for overacting. But uh, nonetheless, you have to make decisions as the GM running a horror game about what Ken Hyde calls in Gerb's horror austerity. How little are you going to let them get away with? Um, I'm a bit odd when I play horror games, and I may be the only person who feels this way that I want a high austerity. I don't want to be forgiven for things going wrong. I don't mind if my character dies. I 
I, I can't quite quite explain this except to say that if it's horror, it should be horrific. And even if it's my player that's that that that's dying, I don't I don't want the normal uh, plot protection to apply. But I'm aware that there uh, that this is probably an extreme point point of view. Well, certainly looking at the ways other games have tried to deal with this, I, I don't think they're catering for that particularly. I, I would say the majority of the games we're looking at here will say, yes, the, the normal people will get killed, but you lot, the PCs, you are special people, mm. and therefore it will at least be a bit harder to kill you. Um, fear itself doesn't do that, but in that you're, you are normal people and you're probably going to die. Um, but ESA terrorists, your your elite investigators, laundry your at least fairly elite people. Oh, they're civil servants, but elitish civil servants. <laughs> civil servants who who know the, who know which which end of a hand of glory to wield. Mm. I would say that Unknown Armies has a whole starts out its uh, chapter on combat by by saying listing all the reasons why when you're face, uh, sitting in a room with another person and you both have knives, it's really a stupid thing to fight. It explains all the terrible things that are, that are going to happen, both to you physically and spiritually, if you go through with this. And then goes on to detail the slightly unforgiving combat rules. And I found that answers uh, some of my, my feelings about um, I want it to matter. If you know what I mean, I'm I'm arguing for a high intolerance of not just stupidity. Games keep saying you should kill the players, yes, but only when they do something stupid. And I say bad luck should happen. The it, the rain falls alike upon the just and the unjust. Bad things should happen to good people. Though I, I think one has to consider a place in narrative as well. In, in a horror game, for example, it's perfectly reasonable to have somebody killed by fellow PC funding explosives, but I wouldn't be rolling randomly every time they cross the road to see if they get hit by a car. Unless no, well, no, it, it should the the bad shit should be about should be the bad shit that the story generates. There's enough. You're, you're setting up a world in which uh, your bank manager is a vampire who would like to suck your blood, or at least your your uh, your MP is. You're setting up a world in which alien tentacle things um, are liable to erupt from the corners of rooms. There's enough bad stuff without without accidents crossing the road or people dying from random infections. But I feel that when you're playing with the, the bad stuff, the bad stuff should be really bad. And look, looking at Monster Hunters... Um some of that bad stuff is the PCs. Mm. Uh, it, it is certainly an option there to say, yes, you've got a whole bunch of power, but this is GURPS, we have disadvantages to pay for that. Yeah. I'm not quite sure if the in the modern horror genre, the White Wolf shtick of You Are the Monster actually counts as part of it. It doesn't feel as horrific as it probably ought to be. At least, at least when I've played the games... Uh, th this may have been a fault of the, of the groups I've played with, certainly including myself, but it, it's ended up being we are basically humans with some slightly weird powers rather than we are inhuman creatures mm. that don't think the same way at all. Well, which refers back to the problems about transhumanism we were going on about last time. But it does tend to reduce itself to um, very strong people who never go out in the daytime, <laughs> or fu fuzzy eco-warriors. or Yeah. 
I, I will admit when I played Vampire, I never felt, felt that I was actually that thirsty for blood. I was never that short of it. But um, perhaps again, as you say, it may be, may, there may be other better ways of doing this. We've sort of wandered off the point. Let's wander on to another one. Oh, secrets then. Are there secrets to be kept? If so, how do you keep them? How do you reveal them? In my case, badly. I, I've got to confess, this is a fault of mine, and this is why we're talking about this. Well, perhaps one could say, is there a campaign narrative? Is, is there a progression, either of an overall campaign or indeed of an individual adventure? Is there, is there a way things are expected to go? Well, sometimes, on an individual adventure level, but yes, the investigation is always a strong element, almost always a strong element, in uh, modern horror role-playing. You're out to find out what's really going on, who's doing what to whom and why. You're investigating mysterious deaths, mysterious disappearances, strange happenings generally, and so there are secrets to be revealed. But if the secret is Old Farmer Smith is a werewolf and is eating babies, that's an end of it in itself. Either you fight him and kill him, or hmm. you die. But campaign games will link Old Father S Farmer Smith to a lot more werewolves, maybe a lot more monsters. I'm thinking of Ken Heights Cabal, setting where the monsters of the world are basically running the world and keeping it secret from uh, all the normal humans, and killing off very efficiently people who uh, do bad things, go out and hunt werewolves, which is a bad thing in the Cabal's point of view. So at what point the Cabal is controlling the world, perhaps up to the very core of reality. At what point do you, and how do you introduce the deeper and deeper secrets? And how do you do it without it becoming a, a god-awful mess like the end of the X-Files, where by the end of that it accumulated so much stuff that wasn't connected together that, um, it, that the whole setting made very little sense? Or Alias, where every time they ran out, out of ideas, they said, oh, well, that's just a minor conspiracy. The real conspiracy is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th though, actually, to be fair, that's just what the Cabal does. Um, mm. Practically every member of the Cabal thinks he's on the highest rank of the organisation. Mm. As they learn more, they discover, hmm, hang on a minute, there's yeah. more power out there. But um, for other games... Well, Unknown Armies has, as I say, a, a three-level structure. Uh, the street level, you know there is weird stuff going on, but you don't have a handle on it. There's the global level, you have a handle on it, and you're starting to become a name in the occult underground. And the cosmic level, and you you have a handle, and you're wielding about like nobody's business, and you're fighting against the other people who want to grab... I should probably say spoiler here. One of the things about Unknown Armies is that the cycle of the world is coming to an end and there are very few places left at the top table and some people are working very hard to grab those last few places and the last one goes, the world ends. How do you go from knowing things at the, at the low level like there's a chap in Baltimore who can uh, tell you uh, how long you've got to live if you bring him a, a pint of your own urine to the world is about to end there are three places left at the table where the gods sit how do you go from one to another what's the right point to reveal all this stuff building up i've had similar problems in other games so i'm possibly not the person to answer this um, 
my, my problem is similarly that there is a great big world world level conspiracy going on mm. and there is the small stuff the players are getting into and how do, how do you connect one to the other how, how do you get them to the point where they should realize hang on we're actually quite interested in that election because yeah sometimes i i feel that i reveal too too much too early it's a fault of mine because i want to get to the cool stuff and i don't quite know one of the features that i wish i exploited more was the is the plausible but untrue ideas that the players come up with i really ought to encourage them more in that sort of thing but um it, it has occasionally been the case for me that i think that's better than what I came up with. It's <laughs> yeah. now true. There is a certain amount of, yeah, you should be open to that to, to that sort of thing. You should be able to say, um, yeah, that's a really neat idea. I'm, I'll, I'll now build it into the background. But um, sometimes you, but but you have to 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 be very careful. You need to look at consistency much more strongly than uh, TV series writers ever do. Well, that, that, that blends in some, somewhat to the next point. Is, is there actually a, a single uh, massive threat that's behind everything? Or is it a world where there is just stuff, there are greedlies all over the place? Ah! It's Snoopy's motto. In the second half, I, I tie this all together. <laughs> I, I don't know. There, there is something to be said for a world of a monster of the week where not everything ties together, where there is weird stuff going on and maybe there are common themes. But I, I, it I has think... longer duration. It doesn't have to be resolved because there is no one true secret to the world. I think all of these games that they're looking at can support Monster of the Week. Mm. But that I think they all have some sort of overarching idea of that there is a single source of all these nasties, mm. though you may have to go a far way back to find it. Um, Dark Conspiracy, for example, yeah. there's there's really no hint in the game as to how you would ever actually bring this into play, if you should at all. But in the GM section, there there is mention of a space probe to Jupiter, and I think it was an ancient thing on IO that they found and opened, mm. and all of a sudden everything went to pot because the nasties got out, for example. Yeah, um, That's not at all connected with the sort of street-level play that the game is designed for, mm. but, it, but in theory the GM can connect things to that. Um, ESA terrorists, the bad guy. There's really only one sort of bad guy. Um, yeah. th they are bad in different ways, but fundamentally they all have the same sort of power. There are only actually two or three different things they can do. But they, they just get inventive with how they do them. Well, as in Mandler's dossier, you're starting out right at the core of things. You're working for, the, for an organisation that knows the truth. There is a whole chunk of background information to absorb before you start playing, yes. Yeah. You know what the problem is. You're just desperately trying to uh, to solve it and discover if it if it can be, be solved. And in Call of Cthulhu, of course, it can't. Mm. You can learn as much as you like. You will go mad in the process. Mm. Um, you cannot actually do anything about Cthulhu. Well, in the same way, um, laundry the the laundry files has a definite deadline. Well, a sort of moving deadline, I believe the. I believe the next supplement will be about um, Case... What's it called? Nightmare Green. Case Nightmare Green, that's right. The the point at which um, the dead start rising and everything turns to shit. 
the oh. actual definition of this is, has changed at various times, but it's never a good thing. Yeah, but in the meantime, there's lots of stuff that you 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 can be doing, and ha and your play, your characters are going to have to deal with in the meantime. There are minor conspiracies, there is office politics, and there is politics politics, and there is fighting against the other uh, counter occult groups in the world, and all that's there between you and the final climax, and you. And I actually, I think, from the point of view of design, I suspect that the, the Laundry Files setup is the smoothest for revealing things as they go, if you survive, and building up to a higher level of power than uh, of the ones that we've looked at. The thing I see as a slight drawback of the of the tiered system in Unknown Armies is once once you've gone up that tier, it's very hard to go down again. You can fail... But, but yeah, but, but well, well, that, that's true anyway. Once you can't unknow things, yes. To some to some extent, you can get away with this in in a, in a less structured system, I think, because, for example, in the laundry files, may, maybe you're fighting the black chamber this week, hmm. but next week you've got paperclip audits to do. Um, and yes, there's probably going to be something horrible behind the paperclip audits. Almost certainly, yes. But um, yeah, there's there's a bit more room to go up and down in in threat and power levels. True. I think it's a feel of unknown armies that even if you're working for one of the last shots at Godhood, you're still a bit of a low-level con artist and shit. At least one of the uh, primary uh, villains who is trying to move up into, into one of the god slots is a con artist who's running his own cult and treating his uh, followers as um, disposable assets put it mildly, you're still the nasty human being you started out as, even as you're working towards the, the top. I'm going much more strange as you do so. So, all right, why, why are you that person in the first place? And let's think about motivation. Mm. Apart from fear itself, where you are just random people who get sucked into horrible situations. Most of these games are dealing with people who maybe not maybe not voluntarily at first, but fundamentally are agreeing to say, right, I'm going to put my life and sanity on the line to go out and yeah. fight horrors. Duty, a human race a sense of duty, human race in the in the in the GURPS terms. It's a sort of noble madness, but yes, it's the it's the common motivation. There is also the motivation of this is a horrible world, and I want to be one of the horrors on top of it, which is perfectly playable and certainly a possibility of monster hunters. It's certainly possible. It's a, a possibility in unknown armies. One of the major things is what are you prepared to pay for the power that you have? What are, what consequences are you prepared to bear for becoming the person you want to be? Which is a question we all get to ask. I think it's possible to mix those two together. In fact, it would be a major achievement if you could have a, a, ma a majority group of noble monster hunters with one or two people there who are about to use that knowledge for their own uh, selfish ends. would be a, a neat trick to pull off if you could design it. You'd need a player who was prepared to think that it'd be reviled, at least briefly. 
Mm, yes. Well, it's a sort of, not the sort of thing you want to reveal before just at the end of the campaign, it must be said. But Call of Cthulhu, for example, doesn't really address motivation. I mean, given the vintage of the game, it would be surprising if it did. Yeah. You know, it would quite it, often say, you get this letter from your uncle, oh. who, who says, I'm about to die and leave you this house. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, the sensible thing to do under these circumstances is not to go down the road that drove him to, to, to madness and death. But the trope is that you do. The peculiar thing is that all of Lovecraft's written heroes are little str are strange loners, whereas the role-playing game requires we get a bunch of these people together and they all agree that it's important. And, and most of them know how to use shotguns. This is true, and it's quite alarming. Uh, Dark Conspiracy, similarly, you've, you've got a bunch of people who've done a huge variety of jobs mm. um, who get together, possibly they have a friend in common or something, but re really that's never addressed in much detail, just how, how you get into the Hmm. Okay, maybe I'm going to dedicate my life to this. Yeah, in um, in laundry files, it's quite straightforward. You've been drafted, and uh, the draft you, is backed up by magical compulsion. You saw something strange, and you're not you're not allowed to be a civilian anymore. Yeah, or you did something strange and potentially world-ending, and we're not trusting you out uh, up there without a leash on you. And at least that uh, brings the the whole thing together, and uh, and makes motivation clear. Ether Terrorists has a similar thing. There, there is a general organisation that is about fighting dark nasties, and by definition you are a member of it. Mm -hmm. You also get individual motivations. Why are you interested in doing this sort of thing? Which can be you know, fame, glory, learning more, uh, that, that sort of thing. My duty to humanity, my duty to God, and the fact if I don't, I will go insane from worrying. I again... Ken Hyde goes into, into a great deal of detail of this in this in Gert's Horror. Sometimes I think you just have to go with the trope and say, yes, it's stupid, but we're going to do this anyway. Or for a convention game, hey, you will happen to end up at the same diner on this dark night. Yeah, you are... One of the best games for Unknown Armies um, is about... Uh, one of the best convention one-offs for Unknown Armies is about a group of escaped criminals and the people whom they are holding um, hostage in a remote farmhouse and how things go badly wrong for everybody. Um, I've run that a couple of times and it's called Breakout and it's quite brilliant. <laughs> All right. One of the things that modifies um, the lethality of game, the austerity we were talking about earlier, is backup. Is, um, is there anybody else out there on our side. Mostly the games seem to assume yes, even Unknown Armies says um, let's start by building the, um, the the company, the group of people that whose, uh, whose common interest binds you together and they get a lot weirder than, um, than just working for a government agency. There is for instance a suggestion that you are all people who have received a transplant from a particular donor. This is what ties you together. <laughs> But all right, ha having a organisational structure certainly helps in in the sense that you you can simply say at the beginning of the session, right, your mission for this week is hmm. go and investigate that. And uh, your line manager in uh, in the in laundry, for instance, will say, and this is how much money you've got to spend on it. Um, don't overspend. Don't underspend. Well, that's another concern, of course. Um, not not only is there an organisation telling you what to do, but what sort of backup can you call on? Mm. 
Yeah. And Call of Cthulhu Dark Conspiracy, there is no organisation at all. You have what you have. In Call of Cthulhu, traditionally, far more money than you're going to need in your short life. <laughs> um, but I, I think because these, these are games that are looking at dealing with heroic individuals yeah. rather than heroic organisations, there, there is always some effort to say, well, OK, you can't just call the cops. In mm. Dark Conspiracy, the cops are probably corrupt and in on it. Yeah. Um, in the laundry files, you probably could get back up from the police, but oh, by the paperwork. Oh, yeah. Uh, madness dossier, yeah, you, you can call in the army if you like, but they're just going to be um, easy, easy meat for the horrible monster. Mm. And they're probably going to be subverted and start shooting at you, so better not to, really. The extreme of uh, having a backup organisation that I recall seeing is a game called GURPS Black Ops, or third edition. Yes. In which you are not only heroic individuals, you are not only James Bond, you are James Bond crossed with Superman, as far as I, I recall. And you, Alien Tech. And Alien Tech. And you are the best secret agents in the world with a big, wealthy organisation, and you still go out and you hunt squamous things in the sewers of Paris and very probably die. But um, it, was, it was an extreme response to, um, uh, to being um, trapped and helpless against the monsters. You're still trapped and helpless. You just have way more things to be trapped with. <laughs> I think, yeah, you have to you have to balance it. I suspect the one of the problems with the modern role playing thing is that things are so closely connected, and you can get away with so with so little, um, and you can get and it's very hard for the GM to isolate the players. It's that mobile phone problem. This is something that makers of horror films have found as well. Fortunately, the American mobile phone system is one that, in order to get the large coverage areas they need for their spread out country, often goes wrong, mm. which helps a bit. But uh, you know, I could get a signal um, for my for my Wi-Fi in High Wycombe this morning. So hey. yeah, it, it is hard to isolate. It, it's also, one has to isolate people, but at the same time, not make it look like a deliberate attempt to isolate them. Except when that would be hor horrific in itself. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so you, you, you are driving off somewhere and your car breaks down and your phone doesn't work and there's nobody in sight and there's nobody else on the road and it, it all starts to build up a bit. And mm. it, one, one response is to t take this post-apocalyptic to wreck civilization and, and then go on from there. But again, that's an extreme response. Backup can be a good thing but has to be carefully managed, I think is the... I, th I think the key thing is, is to make sure that it is... Not people who do the same things the PCs do, if if they're going to be in the same place, because yeah. I, uh, unless they are just much less good at it. I think that I think the rules should be, each bit of help should be a complication, a cost in some regard. Yeah, it, it makes it makes your life more complicated to call on the SAS or whatever, because now your cover up has to include what you tell them to yeah. take the most obvious yeah. approach. As I said at the top, Call of Cthulhu, the oldest of these modern horror games, was the first to introduce uh, the idea of madness um, to the uh, role-playing game. I don't know the first. I mean, you never know what was going on in the early days of D and D. But the first in which the first published game in which insanity, sanity and insanity was uh, a measurable, deliberate mechanic. And uh, as many of us have now heard in the original design draft. Sanity would never have gone up at all. 
Yeah, that's sadly being cheerful, isn't it? Well, let's face it, the, the your typical uh, Lovecraftian story protagonist doesn't really get any better. Well, yeah, but he's on his own, and he never... He never thinks. You're right. He uh, nobody ever thinks. Well, I've I've rammed Cthulhu with my steamship, and he's going to sleep for another hundred years. Gosh, I feel better. No, you just go off and twi quiver somewhere. It was a simple mechanic. The the more you well, two simple mechanics really. You see, and experience horrific things, and your sanity measure drops to the eventually the point where it crumbles away entirely, and you go bonkers, permanently semi-permanently. Along the way you may acquire interesting compulsions and um, fears and odd beliefs. Phobias are always popular. And another thing that uh, limited um, sanity was the more you knew about the Cthulhu mythos, the lower your maximum sanity could be. It might go up a bit, but it was always 99 minus the rating in um, Cthulhu mythos. So the more you know about the reality of the universe, the less stable you're going to be. And that was really a, a major breakthrough, and it still works pretty well all, the, all, the, all these years later. The thing I think works particularly well about having a sanity stat that you roll against is that things start off fairly easily, but as it goes down, you fail those rolls more often and it goes down faster. Yeah. Yeah, it is, a, it is a death spiral towards the straight jacket and the, the padded ward. Particularly if you start learning spells. Particularly, uh, yeah. Learning, learning spells is very bad for you and a major way to power. On the other hand, Duck Conspiracy pretty much doesn't mention insanity. Mm. Uh, there are vague hints that you can get overstressed, but there, there's no overall rule mechanic about it. Uh, GURPS in its various incarnations has variants on their on their fear mechanic which can start inflicting um, major mental disadvantages on you, but it's slightly more f forgiving than um, than Call of Cthulhu and most of the, of the variants. Well, gen generally speaking, a GURPS fright check is against will. It will it may quite possibly give give you some sort of um, penalty like a new quirk of fear and so on. But what it generally won't do is directly attack your will. Mm. So you, you may have picked up a whole bunch of disadvantages and you don't like going through doorways and you don't, don't like the number three and so on, but you are still no more likely to go wibble when you see something big than you were at the beginning, usually. Mm. Well, there, are, there were adaptations of uh, Cthulhu 2, one adaptation of Cthulhu GURPS Cthulhu Punk had the Mythos Sprite check, which basically penalises you by your Cthulhu Mythos skill rating, approximately. That seems perfectly reasonable. Um, Unknown Armies, when it came out, um, produced a more sophisticated version of, um, of this. It divides up your mental stability into uh, four regions, I think it's four. Madness, here we go. Um, we still have books on paper, folks. Yeah, if we if we brought if we brought in our, our laptops and looked it up there, it would probably wibble the recording the way my mobile phone did last time. Cut that bit out. You can go bonkers from violence, from seeing um, blood and guts and uh, unpleasant things, especially having them happen to you. You can go mad from seeing the unnatural, the weird, and the strange. Uh, and the supernatural. 
you can go bonkers from being helpless, which is when you just can't do anything about a terrible situation. I think that's one of the one of the nastiest things you can bring into a, a horror role-playing game. It's something that players tend to dislike very strongly. You can go bonkers from isolation, from being cut off from the support of other people. And finally, and this is this is the one which I think is the subtlest and one of the, the nastiest things you can bring in, you can go bonkers from losing your sense of self, of betraying your own self-image. Each of these is, these scales is rated 1 to 10, and subtly, once you're hardened to, the, to a lower level of stress, you no longer get worse when you experience it. You... This is the thing that Call of Cthulhu did to a limited extent. Once you've seen 20 ghouls, you're not going to be worried by more ghouls. But, yeah. but this is a bit more general, so you can say you, you, you can be inured to blood and guts. Hmm. You've got problems, but that's actually that's still useful to you because you're not going to get more problems from it. Hmm. There are... If you, if you have a low... I think it's governed by intellect. If you have a low, low intellect, you will accumulate it both hardened and failed notches. There are only four failed notches on each of those scales, and once you once you knock off the fourth, you're really pretty bonkers. Um, somebody who's failed his self-notch four times um, frequently feels like uh, you're wa uh, the, the, he's watching every action from the outside, has little sense of will or volition, uh, thinks they're a passive observer along for the ride um, in their in their own body. On the other hand, it is very hard to uh, to to arrange for the higher stress levels to happen. Um, they have set it up so um, some of the the higher stresses are really difficult narrative events to to occur. Um, the lowest level stress check. Uh, self-stress check is if you break a minor promise. The highest level is deliberately destroy everything you've risked your life to support. How often have you managed to manoeuvre a player into doing something like that? Almost never. Mm. Th th there was that incident with the hyperdrives. <laughs> Damn you, yes. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a much more sophisticated some people might find it too fussy mechanic for describing the ways you break uh, you break down. One final subtle point is you don't want to become hardened because your characters, a lot of your characters' power in Unknown Armies is by their obsessions, by the things that they care about. Once you become hardened for I think I think it's two two of the stress meters, you stop caring about anything. You are a sociopath. You can kill people with joy abandoned, but you just don't give a damn about it anymore. And that makes the player character unplayable and an NPC. Interesting. So it's still useful, but you want to be really careful once you start going down that path. Yeah. Once you start going hard, you stop being as human, and you start to lose your ability to give a good damn about anything. It's 
I've not played Unknown Armies long enough to see that come into ma major effect, but I suspect it would be quite awesome towards the climax of the campaign. Why should we save the world? What did it ever do for us? Mm. Oh, right. It's, uh, Cthulhu's rising, is he? I better put the kettle on. Give a British response to everything. <laughs> Moving on a little. We talk about horror, and these games are about terrible things, about death, the destruction of the self, and the destruction of the world. But you can push things too far. I once ran a convention game, which um, I was improvising like mad around, as usual. And I went back the next year to the same convention and got uh, one of the same players in the game and she said to me I I'll play in your game Michael as long as you don't have one of those Michael Kuehl zombies in it I had to think back to what she meant but apparently my description of zombies and the smell and the flesh dripping off them and, and the general just disgustingness of an animated rotting corpse coming and attacking you had given her nightmares and I felt terribly I proud but um, it wasn't anything that I'd meant to do. So, are there um, are there limits? Things we shouldn't uh, things we shouldn't touch. I don't think there are any absolute ones. Um, I've heard GMs say that they, they invite the players to specify particular things that simply won't turn up in a game. And I, I know a player who has a horror of things happening to eyes, injuries to eyes. Hmm. I could see that. Um, and, you know, for most people, it's a bit unpleasant. For this guy, it's no. I really don't want to have. I don't want to have to think about that. Mm. So fair enough. That that can be placed off limits. Yeah, it does require self knowledge in the in the players. Yeah, they they may not know in advance just how disgusting the description is going yeah. to be. I, I went well. Another anecdote. I took a young lady to see Sweeney Todd, um, the Stephen Sondheim musical, and it was a magnificent production. But the depiction of the rape scene in the in the first act, the the, the judge and the beadle um, assaulting Sweeney Todd's wife in the in the flashback, upset her so greatly that she said, "No, I'll go and sit out in the lobby um, whilst you watch the rest of the play." And I felt terribly guilty about that, but I do wonder how you can know. Is there there are there are things like. A lot of these these games are, for a believer in any of the standard religions, pretty damn blasphemous. It's not like you were going into in nominee where the simple description of the game is going to is going to cause anybody who has that sort of problem um, trouble right up front. But to discover that that, uh, that the game asserts that God isn't real, that death is the uh, is the final end, and that's provable. I don't know. How do you know? I think... My, I, I haven't had that particular problem. I, I think e even reasonably religious role players are, are quite prepared to say, OK, this is our world and that is the game world and they are separate. Mm. Uh, I, I've certainly heard of people who can't make that separation, but I've, n I've never actually ended up playing with one. No, yeah. Um, to, to take an extreme version, I, I suspect a lot of fundamentalist Christians would, would want to say... That there should not be a a depiction of a world where magic is available and doesn't damn you forever. 
But on the other hand, they're unlikely to play the games anyway. So. Well, this is true. Um, it is a sneaky thing to do to have Magic available to the players and let them discover that they're damning themselves forever in the process. But um, I've never actually pulled that one yet. I think you just have to be very careful and be aware. Except that I know I would spoil things if I listened too much to the players' fears in advance. Hmm. It's a worry. To some extent, I think one has to decide what, what sort of horror fan is one dealing with. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of horror films. I enjoy the occasional one. Mm. Um, but I think at least some people are, are there for the, for the sudden shock rather than the detailed gore. Mm. Some, some people would rather see, would rather see a, a lo- nice realistic blood spatter than uh, get Back startled yeah. and so on. Um, so I, I, I think possibly finding out what, what sort of other horror media the players like would be would be a start there. I find, though I, I'm fairly squeamish when it comes to spatter and, and, and gore, I find the worst horrors are in uh, metaphysical threats. Um, what's the anthology, black and white anthology movie um, from the 1950s? Dead of Night? It's a, it's um... I don't think they I think this is a spoiler, but it, but it's a very old one. Uh, the movie is a, about a man who wakes up in a cold sweat from a bad dream and then goes down to um, a house in the country where he's been invited to spend the weekend, and he has this terrible sense of deja vu all the way through that that he has dreamt about being in this place before and um, what what the nature of things that are going to happen is, and. It's his struggle with what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not true, that is, without very much gore and splatter in it, makes it a really very terrifying movie for me. But then maybe I'm uh, overly addicted to metaphysics. It's also a tricky thing to achieve in a game. It's great when it works. Yeah. But damn tr- a damn tricky theme and one that probably works best. Well, given that Magnus Dossier is all about what's real, what's not, what's true, what's not, then I think at least one of the games we're looking at is um, is going in that direction. It's certainly pushing in that direction. It, it doesn't have uh, werewolves. It does have plenty of things that will kill you. But, but but that's not the primary focus. No. The primary terror is what's sending those things and where they came from. One of the most common responses to fear is to laugh at it. And... I find that my players, m- many of them, will make uh, jokes that will tend to break the, the mood of horror that I've been so carefully building up up towards, even at the most inappropriate moments. I pretty, really ought to kill them more enthusiastically when they do this. I think that might actually be a good response. Um, pe- people joke in air raid shelters, they joke in foxholes. Mm, true. Um, it, it's a perfectly reasonable human response to fear. It doesn't mean they're not afraid. It does around the table. But, yeah. But if something horrible happens afterwards, hmm. that may still get get a reasonable reaction. Um, I, I've certainly heard people argue that it's not possible to run a horrifying Call of Cthulhu anymore, game anymore because there are plush Cthulhus. <laughs> <laughs> and people bring them to the gaming table, what's more. But I, I, I don't think that um, the North Korean regime is any more horrible because there are cartoons about it. Well, true. Any, or any less horrible. Well, true. Um, I think it's uh, one of my favourite qu- quotes from um, George Bernard, uh, Bernard Shaw 
is life does not cease to be funny when people die any more than it ceases to be serious when they laugh. Um, I think that should be applied. Uh, it should be mentioned that by, that with its paranoia elements, um, though it switches to serious uh, the, at the drop of a hat, the laundry is, is playing for laughs a lot of the time. And very much so, yes. The, the sheer incongruousness of, of attempting to uh, save the world and uh, count the paper clips and I, is it ISO 900 compliant? 9001. 9, yes. We may not know exactly how to save the world but we will detail every procedure we use exhaustively. And label it. Yeah. And it will be health and safety compliant. Leading on slightly from that, how, how do you maintain the uh, horror feel at the table? It isn't. It isn't easy. People, um, you read about people going to extreme lengths to redecorating the the gaming room and uh, using black candles, um, which uh, to to illuminate, which is good if you've got good eyesight. You don't have to peer at your notes quite as intensively as I do nowadays. Glow in the dark dice <laughs> and mood music in the background. I game on one of my nights a week at a, a club in a large open hall and I've never really done more than light horror there because I think you need the feeling of a group of people slightly isolated in a room to be able to to be able to start to build the ambience. I'm sure there are better places to, to do it. I would say certainly you shouldn't really have people walking past and saying oh hi. Yeah people do you know. Actually, I would say that if I had my druthers, and I don't, I'd gather people around a table rather than having them lounging in armchairs around the living room, but uh, you have to accept what you get, I think. That does, I think, depend on the style of game. I'm I'm used to being people around a table, but the main group I play with are in armchairs and things. So, Does it have a problem? It's... There's slightly less direct involvement, I think. It's it's not a huge thing, it's just a very slight difference to the mood, but it did take some getting used to. Focus. Um, keeping people keeping people focused is different. Horror games are a bugger for splitting up the party, um, for getting them separated. In a way, that is what, something you want to do, but you've got to keep the action shifting backwards and forwards between the groups. You can't let people get bored. I mean, this is a general rule in all, in all gaming, but it's it's death, um, even more death to the mood if people are looking at their iPod pads and um, and generally not really caring what's going on at this moment because they're you know, half an hour from coming back to them. If if there are beasts prowling the corridors and somebody's found found a cupboard where they can be safe for a few minutes, that should be a sense of relief. Yeah, but, but only a fairly brief one. Yeah, but in the in the initial leading up investigative stages, focus is lost very very easily. I find I need to be more disciplined about it. I think a, an accelerating sense of threat helps to some extent. There. Yeah, you've got you, something must happen all the time. It's it, it's a general rule in, in gaming, but in horror gaming there should be a sense of pace, and you do not have much time to get this solved. And if you don't get it solved, you will be eaten. You cannot simply go back to town, spend six hours gun shopping, and then turn up again. Mm, why? Uh, though shopping is always a, a useful time filler. 
They shouldn't have any time that needs filling. Thinking of which? Oh, I think we've reached, reached the end of our time. Ah, well, in that case, we will say to all of you, please write, please tell us things we ought to be talking to you about and to each other, and uh, tell us what you think of improvised radio theatre with dice. Take a look at tkelly.ly slash podcast. We thank you for your attention.